This may sound like a contradiction, but we're in the golden age of media. For the first time, you're able to get your content out to people who want it on their preferred platforms and whenever they want it. You can target and reach communities that didn't otherwise have a voice. Splice is bringing together some of Asia's most exciting startups at an event in Chiang Mai called Splice Beta. It's a celebration of the work in this space. Check out splicebeta.com and you will get a 10% off the festival ticket with the promo code ANALYSEASIA, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A. So now, back to the show. Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who is looking at drones on 5G networks and in my spare time, I want to get a pulse on Huawei's recent troubles. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Zen Su, technology reporter from South China Morning Post and host of Inside China Tech Podcast. Welcome Zen and it's great to have you here for the first time on Analyze Asia. Hey Bernard, thanks for having me. You're my first guest from the South China Morning Post, which I actually frequently read every now and then. But before we get to the main subject of the day, I want to get to know you better. How do you start your career? You only read us every now and then. You should be reading us more often, Bernard. Yeah, I do, I do. Anyway, I started out as a summer intern at the South China Morning Post in 2015. So this was after I did like a two-year global business journalism master's program at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I did like a three-month internship. After that, I was lucky in that a position for a tech reporter came up at SCMP just as I was finishing my internship. So I was offered the role and I've been here ever since. What are you currently covering in the technology domain for the South China Morning Post then? Yeah, so currently I cover mostly e-commerce and the intersection of tech and things like retail and consumption and also mobile payments. However, recently I have also been increasingly covering Huawei as a company, you know, and about how like international politics and security concerns from the West are basically impacting this company and the upcoming sort of 5G rollouts. That's a very interesting topic, which we'll come to a bit later. I know that you run a podcast called Inside China Tech. What's the focus of the podcast and who are the intended audience? Yes, so you're absolutely right. I do host Inside China Tech, which is SCMP's podcast for basically anybody who's interested to find out more about China's tech landscape. So we release episodes weekly on Friday evening, Hong Kong time. And this started originally as a podcast where I speak to like my fellow tech reporters in SCMP about timely news events in China tech. But since then, it's kind of evolved to become a podcast where we get experts and tech executives in China and in Asia to talk about specific topics or news events. You know, recently we spoke to Razer CEO Tan Min Liang. So he's going to be one of our guests on our podcast and he's going to talk about gaming. And very recently, we also spoke to Lazada's president, Yin Jing, about the Southeast Asia e-commerce landscape. I think this is getting interesting these days because with the China tech continuously invest into the Southeast Asia region, I think the whole Asia Pacific is actually becoming more and more exciting for a lot of people out there who wants to know this region very well. But I just have one last question before we get into the main subject of the day. From your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can actually share with my audience about what you learned so far? Yeah, so as you might know, I'm actually Singaporean too. And I've always been very interested in China tech, especially after I've lived in Beijing for you know several years. First in 2011 for like an internship and later for my graduate studies in 2013. So when I was living in China, I found it very fascinating to see how tech 
changed people's lives. And I've been very lucky to be able to cover that as well in my career so far at SEMP. So in these past couple of years, it has been very eye-opening to sort of being able to observe how China's tech landscape has progressed and sort of, you know, for me personally, I've had to adopt a very different mindset. I'm very used to looking at tech companies like, say, looking at Facebook or like Snapchat or like Twitter and see how they kind of do things. But in China, it's very different, right? So they have very different strategies. They are much more diverse in terms of like the kind of businesses that they dabble in. So yeah, that has been quite interesting for me, sort of just to see how China companies in tech have extremely different strategies from those in the West and see how that plays out in today's landscape. And I think this is a very interesting segue to actually come into what we're going to talk about, which is the main subject of the day about Huawei's recent troubles. And I think you have covered pretty in depth about the subject of this company and why is this 5G rollout is becoming such a big concern to the international markets out there and how difficult it's actually for Chinese companies to expand outbound. So before we start, I want to sort of help my audience to anchor down. Can you briefly introduce Huawei, the technology company from Shenzhen to my audience? Sure. So Huawei was basically founded in 1987. So that's over 30 years ago by Ren Zhongfei. So that's the founder of Huawei. When he founded the company at the time, he was this middle-aged, demobilized engineer who had spent some time you know, with the People's Liberation Army's engineering corps. So Huawei, when it first started out was selling telephone switches that they bought from like a Hong Kong company and they were reselling these to like post offices and mining sites and so on in these rural areas in China. But a couple years later, Ren Zhongfei decided to invest in developing Huawei's own switches. And now three decades later, they have come quite a long way. They are basically now the world's largest telecommunications gear company. So they've moved on from switches to telecoms equipment and in the 2000s, they started selling that equipment outside of China. And today they have the biggest market share both in China and around the world. In their recent 2018 annual report that they announced in March, they have crossed 100 billion US dollars in revenue, which is really a huge sum. And most interesting, this company is still private. I don't think they're actually listed anywhere at the moment, right? Yeah, so Huawei, you know, they're not listed, like you've said. They have constantly claimed that they are in 100% owned by employees. So current employees at Huawei or ex-employees of Huawei, they basically own sort of stock in the company, but it's not publicly listed in any of these stock markets around the world. And of course, I have actually gone through Huawei's website and I've looked at their investor relations site and it's actually pretty much covering how much revenues they make per year like a public listed company. Of course, they withhold some of the proprietary information and their board of directors is actually the employees themselves. But coming back, how did Huawei went from a small-time trader in Shenzhen to become the world's biggest telecoms equipment supplier? And I think they also go into consumer electronics, like producing the Huawei P10 Mate phone. Yeah, so Huawei, you know, when they were in Shenzhen, like you said, they were still very much a small company. But basically how they became like the world's biggest telecoms equipment supplier today has a lot to do with the amount of research and development that Huawei put into you know, developing its own telecommunications equipment. So they've depended on several things. One is that investment in R&D, as well as the level of customer service that they provide. So Huawei is very known for putting the customer first, no matter what it is, 
There are some anecdotes if you read some of the books that have been written about Huawei, where engineers, you know, they will brave natural disasters to make sure that their customers' networks are still working. So that kind of hunger or like that kind of very aggressive wolf culture, as Huawei likes to call it, has really enabled them to very aggressively pursue customers as well as make sure that they put their customers first and that they offer really good service and at a really affordable and good value for money sort of price. So yeah. I think that has been some of the pretty big factors that have contributed to how they've become what they are today. Before we move forward, I'd like to get an understanding on the technology, what 5G is, and why is this technology becoming a point of contention between the US and China? Okay, so 5G is basically, you know, the fifth generation wireless networks that is expected to be rolled out in 2020. So right now, most of the world is using 4G. So that's like, you know, on our mobile data networks, we are connected to 4G. That's what we use on our phones. And so 5G is the next step to that. And that's expected to become commercial next year, basically. So the reason why 5G is such a big point of contention is because 5G is expected to revolutionize a lot of things. For example, because of its capacity to handle a lot of data connections at one time, it is expected to help transform things like smart cities and Internet of Things. So basically, lots of devices in our homes or in our offices will become really smart. It's also been pegged to be one of the things that will really drive like autonomous driving and driverless cars forward, as well as stuff like augmented reality and virtual reality. So basically with 5G, it's a very important technology that will really bring us into the next digital age. And there are a lot of economic benefits that will come with being able to provide that technology, you know, being able to hold a patent to that technology, having the equipment to that kind of technology. So the reason why this is a huge point of contention is because China, even though it had not been the leader in setting 4G standards and 3G standards in previous decades, it has taken a very strong lead, like they've been very active with trying to set 5G standards. And in contrast to that, the US currently does not have like a telecoms giant that is able to compete with China or with Huawei. So right now it's a little bit tense because the US is a little bit wary of China being the main provider for all of this technology because the US has massive national security concerns with using Chinese technology for its telecommunications networks and for the rest of the world for that matter. And of course, this was also drip down effects to the other parts of the world. For example, Europe is pretty divided on the use of 5G. Uh, I think the UK government is still going to go ahead with allowing Huawei to install the 5G networks, but with them giving the standards to the checklist of the kind of risks that they are dealing with and also other parts of the world being divided on whether they should use Huawei or not. But I want to get a timeline on this. So what has transpired between Huawei and governments around the world since the arrest of Huawei's CFO, Meng Wanzhou, who happens to be the daughter of the founder, Ren Zhenfei? Yeah, so there are two parts to this. So even before Meng Wanzhou, who, like you said, is the CFO of Huawei and is also Ren Zhenfei's daughter, before her arrest, Countries like the US, for example, were already very wary about Huawei as a company. So I think we need to be careful not to sort of necessarily tie the troubles that Huawei is facing today, you know, solely to Mo Wanzhou's arrest. It's all part of the same big problem. So Canada arrested Mo Wanzhou in December last year because the US asked them to. 
And basically now the U.S. is charging Huawei and Meng Wanzhou for alleged fraud and sanctions violations on Iran. So Meng Wanzhou is currently still in Canada. Her next court hearing is on May 8th. That's when Canada will start deciding whether or not they want to extradite her to the U.S. But separately from that, in recent months, the U.S. has also been applying a lot of pressure on its allies. So the U.S. is very vocal and outspoken about not wanting to use Huawei's equipment because it is afraid that the equipment could be used for Chinese intelligence activities. And separate from that, they've been applying a lot of pressure on countries that it's allies with, like in the Five Eyes Alliance. There will be countries like Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Canada. So they're trying to get these countries to sort of isolate Huawei and to exclude them from their network deployments. So the problem is that even though U.S. is applying a lot of pressure, like you've mentioned, the countries are fairly divided. So countries like Australia have already banned Huawei from its networks, but for the U.K., for Germany, it is still up in the air, right? They're still discussing. They've been quite reluctant to ban the use of Huawei equipment entirely. And I think there's a counter-narrative going on as well. Ren Zhenfei, the founder of Huawei, has since come up with a PR blitz giving interviews to Western journalists. But yet the narrative of the Western media is still about the alleged cybersecurity risk. I think this is interesting because I was listening to Terry Gross' Fresh Air, which is a very well-known talk show in the US NPR. David Sanger from the New York Times who has been digging deep into this matter, has actually mentioned as of today, there's no concrete proof that there is actual cybersecurity risk with the Huawei equipment and its links to the Chinese Communist Party. So I think the question for me back to you would be, why is the PR blitz from Huawei not working? I think the argument has shifted away from whether or not there is actually concrete proof. People are concerned about the potential of whether or not that equipment could be used for spying activities or Chinese intelligence activities later down the road. And like you're right, that Huawei has basically, you know, have had Ren Zhongfei do a round of foreign media interviews. He has spoken to foreign media like the CNN and BBC. You know, he's traditionally been a lot more low profile when it comes to the media. So having him actually come out and personally take interviews with journalists that are broadcast on TV, it's really, you know, a sign that Huawei is taking these issues very seriously. They've become much more aggressive in their public relations sort of strategy lately. And that's very likely because they have been pushed into a corner where right now, you know, after the U.S. banned Huawei from supplying equipment to the federal agencies, you know, they've basically been outright banned in Section 889 of the NDAA. They don't really have an avenue for recourse for that or to defend themselves. So what they're really doing is to do things like sue the U.S. government for banning them, saying that it's unconstitutional or like taking out full page ads in newspapers, inviting media to see how they operate and sort of convince countries like New Zealand, you know, that 5G without Huawei is like rugby without New Zealand. So, yeah, I mean, they have definitely stepped up their PR strategy. What will happen to Meng Wanzhou? Will she be released by the Canadian government? So right now, it's really hard to say whether or not she will be released by the Canadian government. So right now, her arrest and extradition has been seen by some as a matter of politics, but ultimately it's really up to the Canadian courts to decide if she should be extradited to the US. So there is definitely a possibility that the Canadian courts could decide that they will not extradite her and she will be free to go. 
However, that really remains to be seen. It's very hard to say at this point. Canada and China's relationship has obviously deteriorated a lot since her arrest. So, yeah, we will just have to wait and see what the outcome is. Her next court hearing will be on the 8th of May. Of course, the Chinese have also detained some of the Canadians on their end. And so the US have actually put a lot of pressure on their allies to abandon Huawei for the 5G build and rollout in the European Union. However, UK has actually approved it and the cybersecurity chief, Siren Martin, has actually rebuffed US on the risk. So I think the question then is why has the UK not followed the line taken by Canada, Australia and New Zealand? The UK is kind of in a very unique position because it has a Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Centre Oversight Board, basically. That's a board that's funded by Huawei. It gives the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre insight into Huawei's products. So essentially, that means that Huawei is paying researchers and professionals in the UK at this centre and sort of opening its doors and saying like, oh, you know, inspect our equipment, check the safety of our equipment for yourselves. So currently the UK for a long time has been the only one who has had this board. And this board each year puts out an annual report after it assesses the products and the risks of the Huawei equipment. So just not too long ago, they actually released their new report. And it said that some of Huawei's equipment did have some security flaws. And they criticized Huawei saying that, you know, the board doesn't currently see anything that gives it confidence that Huawei can transform or change those flaws, even with its US $2 billion sort of commitment to fix the issues. However, I do want to note something very important here that some media outlets have missed, which is that the report by the oversight board very clearly rules out Chinese state interference as the cause of these security issues. So what this means is that, you know, for the UK, they feel like they're able to manage these risks as long as they don't feel like these risks exist, you know, for nefarious intent or malicious intent, then there's no reason to ban Huawei's equipment. Yeah, so countries like the UK, for example, or like Germany, they can be quite reluctant to ban Huawei because generally, you know, Huawei is a big player in the telecommunications industry. Competition generally is good, especially when operators... You know, they want to have a selection of suppliers that they can choose from. So Huawei right now, you know, it's the biggest player. It's setting 5G standards. It's at the forefront of R&D for 5G. So yeah, that's why countries are quite reluctant to ban them. What are the broader implications for other Chinese tech companies given the pushback against Huawei by the US, European Union and other Western nations? So that's quite an interesting question. So, you know, if we've seen with Huawei, the problem with these Chinese companies is that very often it's hard for the West to view them as independent companies, you know, that are free from any government ties and, you know, to be able to fight on the same playing field. Firstly, that's because lots of times their Western counterparts are banned or blocked from competing fairly in China. And secondly, because there is the view that ultimately companies must comply with what the Chinese governments want it to do. So ultimately, I think as long as there is some kind of impression that the Chinese companies must always play by the China government's rules, no matter what they are, is going to be quite difficult for companies like Huawei or any Chinese tech company, basically, to convince the West that it's independent and able to reject a request by the government to collect data, for example, if that is ever a scenario that comes up. And it will also have implications for companies that are actually mainly in the software space, for example, like AliCloud and Tencent, who is also putting up enterprise services for the rest of the world. 
yeah, so there is a possibility that the West could definitely view anything technological for cloud, for example, as potential security risks, you know, as we have read lately, CFIUS, so the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, they have been in talks with that Chinese firm Kunlun to sort of divest their sale of Grindr. So that's the sort of gay dating app that they acquired a couple of years ago. So they've done that because, you know, they're also concerned about national security, even though it's like a, a social media network. So it's really, really difficult to say at this point what's going to happen next. The U.S. or the West could definitely view more Chinese technology products or services with more suspicion if this goes on. So I think this will be a, probably a continuing story that we will have to monitor. So Zen, many thanks for coming on the show. So in closing, I would like to ask two questions. The first question is, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast or anything which recently make an impact to your work and personal life? Yeah, so... Right now, I'm actually in the midst of reading Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. So that's the reporter who broke the story on, you know, how Theranos is falling apart and that a lot of their tests were not actually based on genuine tech. So it's been very fascinating to read about the inside story of such a large company and the depth of reporting that was done for this book is really something to behold. So this is definitely a book that I would recommend everyone to read. I mean, it's been quite popular. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for a while now. So yeah, if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it. (laughs) And how did my audience find you? Okay, so I can be found on Twitter with the handle at Zensu. So that's at Z-E-N-S-O-O. And my work can be found on our SCMP tech page. That's scmp.com slash tech. And like we mentioned earlier, I also host the Inside China Tech podcast. So that drops every Friday evening, Hong Kong time. We can be found on Spotify, iTunes, and also Stitcher. You can definitely Google me at Bernard Leung. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Himalaya. And of course, tweet to me your feedback. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and a star on Overcast or Pocket Cast. And of course, give me your feedback. And this show is co-produced by myself and Carol In. And we would definitely like to tell you soon that we're going to have our live shows coming in fall. So once again, Zen, many thanks for coming on the show. And I would love to speak to you soon. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, Bernard. It's been fun.